I'd, I'd like to throw something in too. Uh, the uh, Sigmund Freud said that we, because we uh, uh, killed the father image and we felt guilty about it, the first tribe of humans killed their father because they wanted to have sex with uh, their father's wives. And uh, we felt guilty about it, and then we had a fear of nature, and you combined the two, and that's why, that's how he explained why people are atheists and why 90% of the people in the world disagreed with him. And why 90% of the people believe in God's existence and are not atheists. So he was trying to explain why so many people believe in a God that doesn't exist. Well, Paul Vitz, a psychologist, has now turned the table on, on Freud's views. And he's shown that they, they've often said Christians are weak people and this and that and blah, 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 and they're in one stereotype group, weak people, and they become Christians. Well, now we've seen Christians, people who have come out of Hinduism, people who have come out of Buddhism, people who have come out of Islam, people who were agnostics, like C.S. Lewis, and you can't put them in one control group. Uh, but now there seems to be a certain amount, that at least the militant atheists, and I'm, I'm not dialoguing with the militant atheists, the, uh, definitely a, a nice gentleman here who is not an atheist at all. He claims to be a, a skeptic, if you, if you will. Uh, but now it seems that these real militant atheists, uh, there seems to be some documentation to show. Paul Vitz goes so far as to say you can find a control group and that in Freudian terms, the militant atheist may be a man who wants to kill the father image. So whereas Freud said the Christian deifies the father image because he feels guilty because mankind feels guilty for killing the, the first father or whatever, uh, Paul Vince turns the table and says, no, the atheist is the one uh, who wants to kill a father image. R.C. Sproul, a Christian theologian, went so far to say that God is not caused, the God of the Bible is not caused by wishful thinking. Uh, if we would invent a God that we would like, it would be a lot different God than the God of the Bible. The God that we would invent would be a God who would let us do whatever we please, which would, there's, that's the God of the New Age movement. But the God of the Bible is a God who says, Thou shalt not when Phil Fernandez feels like doing something. And he says, Thou shalt when Phil Fernandez don't feel like doing it. And so the God of the Bible is not a likely candidate for man to think up by wishful thinking. I think Feuerbach and Freud, uh, I think that, uh, that that's been answered over and over again by Christian theologians throughout time. It's been a really good program. I've enjoyed both the viewpoints. Um, Dr. John, this is to you. Um, you said someone asked about truth and how you would perceive it. And you said um, that basically you would the basis of how you would perceive truth. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to paraphrase what you said or trying to get close to um, that you would The basis of it would be through the five senses. And, and you also um, spoke about language being something that we use. Um, and you also, I believe you said that you felt that Jesus, or you believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Um, it's interesting that it says in the Bible, in the book of John, that, um, that the Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and that Jesus proclaimed to be the Word. Um, and to complicate things further, um, Jesus was also God. Was God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. So if Jesus was God, and he, was a, and a, he is a historical figure, I, I would think that was a pretty good basis for thinking about him as being real. Um, I don't 
really have a question. Um, but Jesus did make the statement that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And I think it's interesting to correlate him being the word and also him saying that he was the truth. Mm-hmm. Actually, that is um, it's actually quite a captivating um, thought. That is the use of that um, observation that he was the word. And of course, that raises a question in my mind as a historian. My, my training is much more as a historian than as a philosopher. Um, about how that idea ever got into the Gospels, right? How it ever got included. And you have to remember that the people who were writing, putting the Bible together, the New Testament together, were more versed in the Greek language than any other language. And the dominant language which influences the early shaping of the Bible is Greek. And the word uh, for the early Christians was logos, uh, directly translated uh, as uh, word into the English Bible. Um, and so it raises, I guess, just at a historical level, whether or not Jesus ever said that or whether or not this is something that a Greek uh, speaker like Paul, uh, after the fact, is saying, it'd be very nifty if we had Jesus say this, um, because this will speak a lot, to, at least to the Greek people I'm trying to convert. Um, and just the sort of literary, philosophical level, though, it is poignant. That is, because in a sense, um, that appeals to me, the idea that in the beginning was the word, not in the metaphysical religious sense, but in the idea that our understanding of the world, our understanding of things in the world, all these real things, tables and chairs, but also unreal things that we create, like rights and freedom and beauty, all these uh, abstract nouns that we have, which really are the most important things to us, you know, like rights and beauty and soul. Um, all these are so fuzzy, you know, they're all they're all metaphysical in themselves, right? You know, they're, they're just in this realm of language. So, so, in a way, our life hinges upon something which is really insubstantial, right? So on the one hand, I claim uh, that you really do need to cleave to the senses, and stay very close to the senses, but on the other hand, I'm more than willing to admit that so much of our life, uh, both as individuals and as social beings, is intimately caught up with something much fuzzier than senses, right? Language. Um, and... Um, that doesn't allow me, uh, nor do I think it should necessarily allow anyone else to make the leap to saying, well, ergo, a God with a litany of um, moral and legal implications, and, and that's definitely true. Um, I still think that's a problematic leap. I hope that was coherent. Yeah, the, uh, the word for word in, in the Greek, uh, there it means the, the self-expression of, of a particular being and uh, Jesus uh, the, the apostle John was the one who wrote that he didn't put the words in Jesus's mouth it was just something that he wrote in the first 18 verses leading up to his gospel uh, but Christians early Christians do what Christians do today whenever you enter a new culture uh, you take some of the terms from that culture and you use it for your purposes to spread the gospel and the word logos had, a, had some philosophical connotations, and he took it and he applied it to Jesus Christ as the self-expression uh, of God. Uh, but uh, Dr. John had mentioned earlier, and he seems to be alluding to it a little bit here, that he doesn't spend a whole lot of time examining evidence for or against God's existence, and that the, the questions uh, that can be solved uh, just by through sense experience are of uh, more importance to him. But I think the things that Blaise Pascal talked about, the fact that we might have 70, 80, maybe even 100 years here on earth, but if there is a God, there are eternal issues and eternal consequences 
to our rights. So I think if a person is not settled on this particular issue, maybe they should spend more time uh, examining the evidence for or against God's existence. Um, Mr. Or Dr. Fernandez, my question after this to you. Um, you state that uh, God, the Judeo-Christian God, is an infinite being and that we ourselves are finite, limited beings. Um, I don't really necessarily like that idea that I'm a finite being, which means that my potentials are therefore limited. I'd like to think that I have the ability to become whatever I want. Maybe someday evolve into being a god myself, which is not something I really want to do. Too much responsibility. Um, I say you you say that Christian, the Judeo-Christian God, specifically the Christian God, is the God, the only God. You say is also the only infinite entity or thing in existence. Um, you say that. The idea of uh, the Hindus that we're all are one is incorrect, and yet you state, begin with, that the Big Bang Theory is, is truth, and yet the Big Bang Theory states that all matter in this universe was once all one thing, which means we all were at one point one thing. Now this, this uh, infinite density expanded into what? Into infinite space, I would like to think. Uh, maybe there are other little universes expanding at the same time and they're controlled by their own gods or whatever. Uh, my question is, why is the... why would the Judeo-Christian God be my God? Maybe somebody else, something else is my God. Or maybe I'm my own God. Or maybe I'm the God of something else. There's an infinite possibility infinite possibilities. Yeah, well, you, you basically what it comes down to is finite, limited existence demands that there be an infinite cause. Uh, once you have this infinite cause, uh, you can't have two of them. You can't have two infinite beings because if you have two infinite beings, if one wanted to do something and the other one wanted to prevent them, they could uh, arm wrestle to a draw. You see, the existence of one infinite being would limit the existence of the other infinite being, which would mean that neither being was infinite. And so you could only have one infinite being. But the only way you're really going to ground finite, limited, dependent existence is to come up with an infinite being. And it's not a God of the gaps uh, just trying to say, well, I don't understand where earthquakes come from, therefore God caused it. Uh, the Big Bang takes us literally to the beginning of the universe. And since from nothing, nothing comes, something must be eternal, otherwise nothing would exist, but something now is. And uh, so I think it's very, very clear there. You can't have two infinite beings. As far as infinite potential, I would love to have infinite potential. Uh, I'd love to be playing football, on Monday, you know, playing on Monday night football, and people cheering for me as I run for touchdown after touchdown. Uh, sometimes I have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. So, uh, uh, and you know, people will argue out with me all up and down, trying to tell me that I have infinite potential. But uh, we all go to sleep at night because we get tired. We don't have access to an infinite amount of energy, and we are limited. And I think that's one of the facts of experience. If I stop drinking water and eating food, 
I will die and my life is dependent on other things. And that is the precise and fundamental motive for belief. You are fragile, like myself, and you can accomplish all that you want to accomplish. And um, you need consolation for that. And we all do. And I think that's the foundation of belief. So then you say that we have a need for that kind of consolation. Yes, but we need does not equal truth. Uh, the need for consolation does not mean Yes, but even a starving man, uh, there is food on this earth, there is what we, in fact, the anthropic principle of scientists have gone over at this point. Uh, it seems that many different factors, not only in our solar system, but in the universe, the speed of the expansion of the universe, and right on down the line, seems to be all geared to make life on this planet possible. Our needs are taken care of. And it seems like if man genuinely needs something, not if he just wants it, but if he genuinely needs something, it exists. And I think, I think we can even come up with an argument from a religious experience that all men sense a need for God. Even, even Jean-Paul Sartre and, uh, uh, who was it, Walter Kaufman, who, uh, an atheist who stated that man is the God-intoxicated ape. Uh, many atheists, agnostics, and skeptics have, uh, have openly admitted that man desperately needs God and has a thirst for God, but then they claim that he doesn't exist. Uh, I'm claiming that our thirst and our need for God can be met. Also, the other side of the coin, by the way, each one of us not only has a thirst for God, but we also have a desire for human autonomy. We want to be our own kings and our own bosses. So I think the non-Christians need to stop slamming the Christians and saying, well, you just wish for God. We all wish that God exists. I think we need to recognize that, too, there's another drive in man where we don't want God, where we want to be our own king. We want to be our own boss. And so if God exists, that's going to push us a little bit out of the way. We're going to have to get with this program. So I think you can find motives for being a believer and motives for being an atheist. The question is, where does the evidence stack up? And that's what I tried to do in my opening statement, was provide evidence for God's existence. Dr. John, you come across as wanting to believe, but the evidence doesn't support that. What kind of evidence are you looking for? What would it take for you to believe? Now, there's an easy question. <laughs> Uh, can we do this in another show? <laughs> very difficult, very difficult question. I don't think I could say anything intelligent without thinking about it a lot more. Maybe if something comes to me, I'll pipe up. I appreciate uh, that Dr. John did share that with us, that he would like e eternal consolation. He would like there to be... Who wouldn't? Uh, uh, God and, uh, and there are other people on the other side of the coin, like, like Nietzsche had said, that if, even if they could prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, I would hate him even more. And so there are people on the other side of the coin, but I think that just the fact that he's... He's been honest and stated that he has this desire for God. I, I think we need to pat him on the back for it and try to dialogue with him if we do hold that the, the Christian worldview. 
and uh, maybe someday he'll get that evidence that, that he's looking for. Uh, I also appreciate that you weren't just going to come out and say, this is what I want. Like Anthony Flew and a lot of others did, they put God in a box and they say, this is what I want. God has to be material and has to uh, be able to touch him and this and that and blah, blah, blah. He makes a list of things that he wants God to be and kind of explains him out of existence. And I appreciate your honesty there. Um, let me add, though, that I, you mentioned Nietzsche. You've mentioned him several times. And I would say that actually I understand what Nietzsche argues uh, about when he says um, that if God did exist, I really couldn't tolerate it. You know, that I have to be God, that I have to be the only being who imposes meaning, as all individuals have to. And I think one reason why I answered the way I did to the lady who asked the question is because I probably have less character than Nietzsche did. I think Nietzsche was individually and intellectually um, and perhaps morally strong enough that he could actually say that, whereas I am probably morally weaker to the point where I would go, yeah, I give up. You know, I can't wrestle any longer with the issue of trying to extract meaning out of a world of improbabilities, and it would really be nice to have somebody else, i.e. a god, to say, here is the meaning, uh, here is the purpose, here is what you have to do to achieve salvation. Uh, I think I'm um, weak and sufficiently tired uh, that uh, I might even relish that. Although I think Nietzsche was strong enough that he didn't and wouldn't. Let me add one other thing. I didn't actually plan on reading this, but I just um, this is just to confound things a bit more, and I don't want it to turn into anything confessional. Uh, but it might actually add another layer, and it might actually, in some, let's say, um, tangential way, respond to your question. It's a, it's just two uh, lines of verse from the Austrian poet Rainer Rilke. Um, he wrote it in German. This is an English translation by Robert Bly. He wrote, I live my life in growing orbits which move out over the things of this world. Perhaps I can never achieve the last, but that will be my attempt. I am circling around God, around the ancient tower, and I have been circling for a thousand years, and I still don't know if I am a falcon, or a storm, or a great song. It loses the rhyme in English, but it's still a very uh, fine collection of um, images and thoughts. Now, that poem, let me just say very briefly, that poem actually speaks to me. It's one of my favorite pieces of verse, and it mentions God. But I don't, in part to that reference to God, I don't imbue it with any moral or legal or, uh, in general, value-based significance. It carries none of those implications. If it carries any significance for me, and it's not necessarily the most important word in that poem. Um, if the word carries meaning and significance, it does so by virtue of some sort of vague emotional appeal, this idea of, of a something which would be the source of meaning because you happen, your life happens to have meaning because you're circling around it. All the things that you do uh, is a sort of a circling around a something. It's also vague. It's also unsubstantial. It's uh, something which is appealing in a, a amorphous psychological and emotional fashion. Um, 
And I suppose one way of rephrasing your question is what would it take to bring coherent and more substantial meaning to that reference to God in that poem? And again, I have no idea. We're running a bit over time right now. I'm going to take, we're going to take a couple more questions. Uh, this facility is only reserved for a certain amount of time. I ask that you keep your questions direct and to the point, please. Well, that kind of kills this. But. <laughs> um, I keep hearing the, the term belief come up over and over and over again tonight. And I'm sorry, this isn't so much a question as something to provoke thought. And it's, it's pretty much directed at you, Dr. Uh, John. Um, belief is the fundamental thing, what you choose to believe in. However, belief is based on thought, and it's, it's based on rationality. Okay? If we're rational beings, so, trying to meander here. Basically, you have to choose to believe in something based on the evidence, okay? If you choose to be skeptical and make that skepticism dogmatical, then maybe I'm wrong, but I view that as bordering on the edge of ignorance. And ignorance is only a sin when it becomes a preferred state of mind. Um, there's much evidence scientifically beyond the five senses for things that we can't explain that have been looked at, things, metaphysical things, parapsychology and things like that. And I'd just like to read one thing out of the Bible, Romans 1.18, and it talks a little bit about belief. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever created. Amen. Belief is the fundamental thing behind all of this. And in order to look at the evidence, that's where skepticism has to end. I just a question. Where was it? Where was it? You prefer to comment? I just think uh, that passage what it's talking about is the uh, through the writing of the Apostle Paul the Lord is saying that God has given man ample evidence in the creation in this created universe that we should see uh, that God is its cause that God brought it about when a man looks at a sunset or a sunrise look at the stars at night he should conclude that this was designed 
didn't get here by accident. He should conclude uh, that God exists. Uh, the other side of that coin, though, is that uh, I lived the first 21 years of my life as a non-believer. I needed to see uh, a certain amount of evidence even beyond what God said was enough and that I should have no excuse. And God was gracious to me and God allowed me to live long enough to where I finally saw uh, enough evidence to accept Him, uh, accept the God of the Bible. So I think that uh, what we need to do is, uh, God says we have no excuse for rejecting Him, but we need to try to, out of love, speak the truth in love and try to persuade our friends that don't believe in the existence of the God of the Bible. Maybe they just need a little bit more evidence. I think they're worth it. If, if God created Dr. John, then God loves Dr. John. And if God loves Dr. John, then Phil Fernandez loves him. And then I think uh, we need not the name call, but to, in love, try to persuade them that, that when he looks up at that sunset, that that's a God, that is the eternal consolation that he's looking for. And that if you're looking for hope, if you're looking for hope that lasts, you find them at the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who could top that? <laughs> One last question. I just have two points for uh, Dr. Fernandez that I'd like him to clear up for me. He, uh, you stated that, that the astronomers, the two astronomers, and I can't remember what names you used, they said that, uh, that you used the one to the ten times whatever power of uh, intelligent life happening without some intelligent intervention. Well, if there was intelligent intervention, then wouldn't that intelligent entity that intervened have to have had some intelligent intervention to come about in existence? And if so, then does God have a God? And does His God have a God? And so on. And then also, you say that, uh, that the people's death in the Word, dying for the Word, is, is therefore the uh, proof of its existence and correctness then would that also mean that anybody who died for any cause that they believed in, therefore their cause is correct? And if that is true, then wouldn't fascism be correct then because people have died for it in its belief or any other system of belief? Okay, those are two good questions. First question, does God have a cause? Uh, I answer that by showing that it's impossible to have an actual infinite set of finites. In other words, you can't, you can't keep going back. Another cause, and another cause, and another cause, and another cause. Eventually you arrive at what Thomas Aquinas called the first cause, what I would call the uncaused cause, the being that always existed. You have to stop somewhere. You can't go on forever because of the arguments that I gave, the impossibility of traversing an actual infinite, and uh, the impossibility, the, the uh, contradictions that are generated by uh, an actual infinite actually existing. So does God have a cause? No. God is the uncaused cause of all else that exists. Uh, when the atheist says that the universe is eternal, then he understands what an uncaused cause is because he believes it's the universe. So I don't know why they have a hard time understanding what the Christian means by that. Secondly, he talked about, the, the question was asked about, well, just because Christians died believing uh, does that mean that those who died for Nazism or fascism, that they were right too? No, no. But what did they die for? They died claiming that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, 
and that because he proved to them that he could conquer death for himself, that that proved to them that he could conquer death for them, therefore they were not afraid to be thrown to the lions. In other words, they said, because I saw Jesus risen from the dead, he proved that he is God, he proved he can save me, I don't care if you throw me to the lions. And so I'm not saying that because somebody dies for something that makes it true, it means that if they're willing to die for something, then they really believe it to be true. So these Christians really believed that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. That is better than modern lie detector tests. That's highly reliable eyewitness testimony when people claim they saw Jesus risen from the dead and they would not deny it even when thrown to the lions. I don't forget that um, any number of people in a range of world religions have died for their faith and full conviction and you wouldn't want to use that to extrapolate the truth of that faith. Islam again comes to mind. I mean the whole other concept of jihad is to go forth and fight and if necessary die for your faith and that is this a real uh, source of witnessing, literally, you know, martyrdom, um, as uh, what the Christians did. Last question, no exceptions, ladies and gentlemen. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, Dr. Fernandes, uh, you mentioned that you were here to discuss creation versus evolution. You mentioned the anthropic principle and uh, the probable, improbable. Uh, I would like to see what you would like, how you would um, explain William James' uh, argument against Nathaniel Shaler, who said that uh, because of all the millions of years that man took to evolve to come to now that there were so many possibilities that that there had to be divine intervention for man to be man as we see him now would you please discuss william james answer to that please okay yeah i'm not familiar with william james but i'm not real familiar with that particular dialogue, I can say what I believe about the age of the earth and all. Uh, at this point, I think that there's good evidence that the universe is old, and there's also good evidence that the universe is young. Uh, and so I'm kind of open on the issue, although at this point I favor a young earth, but it's more for uh, exegetical, scriptural reasons uh, rather than scientific reasons. Uh, but even if the universe is billions of years old, before mankind even came on the picture, uh, that would be no problem because God isn't getting any older with time. As uh, St. Peter said, a, a day is as a thousand years with the Lord, a thousand years as a day. And so it doesn't seem to uh, create any difficulty whether God decided to take his time to bring man about or whether to do it all at once. Uh, as far as evolution, I do not hold, I'm not a theistic evolutionist. Many Christians do believe that God used evolution to get us here. I would disagree with them there, but that's a whole other debate. And I think there's an awful lot of problems uh, with evolution. Dr. John, in a telephone conversation, told me he believed that evolution was probable. Uh, I don't think it is probable. I think there's contradictions and all kinds of holes in it. And uh, I would like, personally, I'd like to come back for creation versus evolution and did Jesus rise from the dead. I would love the opportunity to get into a community college and debate the, or dialogue those decisions, those uh, 
uh, particular uh, uh, things out. And at this time, we're going to take two minutes, ladies and gentlemen. And that's two minutes, so don't do a whole lot of shuffling around. We've got John, I thought he, uh, he did a, a fine job uh, defending his position, and he's a, uh, a definite gentleman and, a, and a, a good friend. It's always nice to, to go somewhere and to, to make some new friends. Uh, in his uh, statements during this uh, dialogue, uh, he discussed uh, several things, and uh, he talked about the two drawings that were two different things. They weren't one thing, and he tried to use this as evidence against the law of non-contradiction. It doesn't really hold, because the drawings, the drawing is really only one thing, but it's capable of being perceived differently by two different people. But the artist who drew it could only draw it in one way, so that it could look like an old lady or a young lady. Either way you look at it or whatever uh, the, the thing was itself, but it was still the same drawing. Uh, you can't beat the law of non-contradiction. Every time you try to beat it, you have to assume it to be true and use it uh, in your attempt. He talked about Christians and ecology. Uh, God entrusted uh, the earth to mankind, and we abuse that, even Christians have abused that. And I think Christians need to take the advice of the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, and we need to treat the earth a lot better. And uh, so Christians should be for ecological things, not against it, although I would not go to the extremes of, of some people. Uh, mentioned in the uh, newspaper, the school newspaper, Dr. John Porter is saying, and the universe is an event and, it, and it's got a cause, which seems to me to be a, an extremely limited hypothesis, particularly if the end result that you want to reach is that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and how the hell do you get there from that point? Uh, I can get there from that point, but it takes three or four more debates. And I will, I'm willing to come back for, did Jesus rise from the dead, creation versus evolution, is the Bible God's word, any one of those topics. If you've got a professor here who likes to dialogue or debate the issue, we'll get together and, uh, and we'll discuss that, how the Christian gets from that point to the other points, or how the Christian thinker gets from that point to the other points. Uh, we talked a lot about hope and all, uh, and the whole nine yards. Bertrand Russell, who's an atheist, and why I am not a Christian in a free man's worship, he wrote this. That man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no hero heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to an extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the, 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 the debris of a universe in ruins. That's where atheism was leading him, and that's what he accepted. Uh, obviously, the absence of hope. And that's going from Bertrand Russell, uh, an agnostic uh, himself. Blaise Pascal, there is no hope. Seventy years and then you cease to exist. Uh, that's not a lot of hope to offer mankind. Blaise Pascal stated this, uh, there are only two classes of people who can be called reasonable. Those who serve God with all their heart because they know Him 
and those who seek him with all their heart because they do not know him. In other words, Blake, Pascal says, we need that hope. And if you're not a believer, you should be looking into the evidence and try to find them because without him, there is no hope. And finally, I'd like to say, though, that was not what I based my whole argument on. That was a, a side note. Summary of my argument is that everything that has a beginning needs a cause. And we have shown from the Big Bang, Big Bang model and the second law of thermodynamics that the universe is winding down, the universe had a beginning. We also used two philosophical arguments uh, for that to show us. So everything that has a beginning needs a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe needs a cause. I provided evidence that the cause of the universe is eternal, intelligent, and moral. A personal God exists. And that was the summary of my argument. Uh, Dr. John did not respond uh, to most of that argument. Uh, he stated that it was uh, would take too much time or, or, or this or that, but he did not respond to my argument. So I think my argument stands. Uh, I think that everything that has a beginning needs a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe needs a cause. Thank you. I've never responded to polytheists when they try and claim that there are multiplicity of gods, but that doesn't conclude, ergo, that their argument stands. So I wouldn't reach that conclusion. Um, you quoted Pascal quite a lot. Might, might begin with a quote from him that, um, in fact, you may have paraphrased it, that the heart has its wisdom of which the mind knows nothing. And uh, that seems right. Uh, a heart standing for the emotions, standing for the feelings. There are certainly wisdoms which transcend reason or intellect. This is partly what Ellen's observation was about earlier on. But again, I would refer you to um, the main reason I think I'm here talking with uh, Phil about this. Um, refer you to the need to be very cautious before you move between belief and truth before you try and cross that chasm, because it is a chasm. Are there any number of people who have made that crossing willy-nilly, incautiously? And I think, uh, as a historian, I could cite you example after example of how that results in dogma, which usually results in death and in pain. And of course you're saying, you know, what, what has this to do with Christians who only mean uh, to emulate Jesus Christ and to do no harm and to achieve salvation? Um, a person in, during the last break asked me why the United States, if it's grounded by its forefathers in a belief about God, if our most basic documents are rooted in assumptions about a deity, um, why mess with that? Well, uh, you mess with that, and you have to question that, and you have to be skeptical about that, because there are conclusions about people's rights, things as basic and banal, but nevertheless as important as women's rights, abortion rights, homosexual rights, how you treat the poor, how you treat the ecosystem, all of these things are, and the way we react to them, the things we will do about them are in 
embedded ultimately in our assumptions about what is true about the world. If you buy into a belief that God created the heavens and the earth, and then you go to interpret your good book in such a way that says, well, it says here that you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, then your beliefs have made that movement across the chasm of doubt and caution to truth and being truth claims they now become value claims they become moral and legal institutions and the essential point is that you might be wrong just as Phil would appeal to you to consider your doubts and appeal to you and beseech you uh, to quote Oliver Carmel uh, in the bowels of Christ to consider that you might be mistaken just as he would beseech you to reconsider your um, your uh, faithlessness, if you have a uh, less than certain faith, I would beseech you to um, consider your faith and doubt your faith and ask yourself whether or not you have such certainty of belief that it is truth and thereby you can structure your behavior and the laws of the land upon such things. Because you might be wrong and the consequences will be paid by other people as they are. Um, I would refer very briefly to another point made by someone during the break, uh, very briefly on the design argument, since it's one of the more compelling ones in our mind. Right? We, we're here, we have symmetry, we have order in our bodies. It, it is interesting, among all the things you can point out about the body, about flawed things, atavisms, um, the appendix and whatnot, um, one of the most interesting is the eye, because I began with that. Of the eyeball, the eyeball maker. The eye, in fact, the human eye is a flawed instrument, right? Nothing that you would expect really from uh, a perfect eye. Uh, if you look at the structure of it, um, the neurons and vessels which go back to the cortex are actually in front of the photoreceptors, which are there for taking in the light. This would be like putting the film in a camera in front of the lens. Um, this is a badly designed instrument. You might say, well, God has a reason. Uh, and maybe. It seems like it's a very uh, stupid design. Um, what that suggests is this is not a perfect design. And the design argument, being one of the more compelling arguments, is a flawed argument. But I'll say no more.